All right, good morning. Let me pray for us as we get started. Father, we are grateful to be found in so rich a story as this one. To not just be wandering aimlessly on a rock in the cold universe, but that we are uh, children of a loving Father, uh, and that this world is yours, and that you delight in it still uh, enough to rescue it. So we pray this morning that you would guide our time, that you would continue to shape the story that we're living in in our minds, that it might shape our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, I believe that something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened with men. Ivan and the brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky. Today we are talking about that moment, that grand finale of the world's existence. That moment when Ivan believes, hopes, longs that all suffering will be healed and made up for, that it will be possible in the end for everything that has happened to be justified, made right, believable. That's the end of the story that we've been telling for the last six weeks. The end that we've kind of been longing for, hoping for ever since the fall, ever since Luke's lesson, week two, when we saw humanity's rebellion and amidst a good, beautiful, loving, uh, beloved creation, humanity's rebellion of God and rejection of his purposes. Since then, we've seen God setting in action through his covenants and through the coming of his son, a trajectory for all creation to end in harmony again and in peace, to end and all things being restored. So this morning is the consummation. It's the completion of God's plan. And we're going to ask two questions to frame our time with it. The first is, what will this look like? This grand consummation. And second, how will it come about? So what will this look like? And second, how will it come about? That's where we're going this morning. So what will it look like? That's the first question. And the answer is there on your cheat sheet in front of you. It will look like the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things. We're going to look at both parts of that. Restoration and all things. Restoration. That's the first bit. Restoration is the sense of being returned to created purpose. The sense of being brought back to an original intent. Crucially, Not an escape from creation in the end, but a restoration of it. Not an escape from creation, but a restoration of it. We're going to unpack that for a moment. But just think about the words that we use to talk about salvation. The words that Scripture uses and that we use. Most of them happen to start with R. Restoration. The sense of being restored, brought back. Redemption. 
The word meaning being bought back. And if someone was sold into slavery, they could be bought out of that slavery. Redeemed, being bought back. So from the original state of freedom into slavery, brought back into freedom again by redemption. Reunion implies there was union before that has been lost and is now restored. Brought back. Reconciliation that implies there was some kind of conciliar relationship before that was lost and is now Brought back, ransom, this image of someone who has been captured or imprisoned that must be bought and so brought back. Recreation, the new creation, the sense of a creation that is distorted but is being brought back. Resurrection, the sense of something that was alive that is now dead that must be brought back. Even the word salvation itself in the Greek is the word soteria. And that's a word that means health, healing. So salvation itself is the process of something that was whole, that is no longer, that is being brought back. The Christian message is the message of return, of restoration, not of God abandoning his plans with creation, but of God bringing them back to his original purpose. Restoration. And what will be restored? Everything. Everything. Not just humanity in its rebellion restored to relationship with God, but creation as a whole. Everything that, that God has made that is broken by the fall will be restored to Him. As we mentioned in the hymn a couple of weeks ago, He comes to make His blessings known as far as the curse is found far as the curse is found, without bound, without limit, as far as there is evil, that far will God's restoration go. Think about Colossians 1. Christ comes to reconciling, He's reconciling all things to Himself. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, Paul says. Everything restored to Him. Not just humanity. The, all of, the whole of creation. Think about Romans 8. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, what? That the creation itself will be set free. Creation set free. Remember at the beginning we talked about how humanity's rebellion, because humanity is tasked with stewarding the world, as humanity fails in that task and gives up that purpose for, to seek their own way, that creation suffers as a result, that the curse falls on all the earth now, now in Christ, now in the consummation of all things, it's all returned to what God intended. As one author put it, to destroy what God had made in the end would be to concede a tremendous victory to Satan. The salvation of a few individuals would be but a, glad, a gathering of splinters while God desires the wholeness of the tree. The wholeness of the tree. The restoration of all things. What is the consummation of God's purpose is going to look like? The restoration of all things. And I think specifically that restoration comes through judgment and through healing. We're just going to touch on these briefly. But through judgment and through healing. Let's start with judgment. Evil, if God is going to restore the world, evil must be incapacitated. There's no way for God to 
restore a world in which chaos is still allowed to reign and wreak havoc. God must incapacitate evil, and in the same breath, justice must be brought to pass on his world, in his world. There must be a settling of score, of making things right. And scripture is replete with evidence that this judgment is real and coming. That this judgment is actually a necessary part of God's restoration of all things. To call what is evil, evil. And to call what is good, good. And to separate them. This is part of the consummation. Now I think we do a great disservice to the scriptures and to our witness when we get too specific about what that judgment will be and how exactly it will unfold. Jesus and the apostles speak freely about its existence, about judgments and about hell, but he doesn't, they don't speak about it very often. It's present, but in hints and metaphors and pictures, enough for us to say with confidence that judgment is a real part of the Christian story and one which God will bring about for the sake of the restoration of all things. But not enough for us to get into too much detail therein. I think we quickly get ourselves into trouble when we try to go into more detail than Scripture provides. But on the same, in the same time, we do an equal and opposite disservice if we ignore that judgment is coming. If we ignore it and pretend like judgment has no part in the Christian story, not only do we ignore creation, but we ignore the cries of the hurting and the oppressed. Think about the Psalms. Think about how many of the Psalms are crafted by someone who is under injustice, unjust conditions, under oppression. David being hunted by Saul. Or the people of Israel conquered now by Assyria or Babylon. The cries of those in captivity. How can we sing of our mother country when we're here in another land? Cries longing for justice to come. Longing for judgment. If we pretend like judgment is not part of the story, what word do we have for those who are under injustice now? We do a disservice if we do not speak of justice. We do a disservice if we speak with too much detail about justice. What we can say is that justice will come, that God will bring judgment, and it is part of his restoration of all things. And I found, I found this moment in Statesboro a few years ago. I think it was, uh, it was during COVID, a lot of time for introspection in COVID, right? Being in your backyard by yourself for a couple years, what it felt like. Um, and I remember this moment wrestling with the suffering of some of the people that I was working with at the time, the, the despair and depression. I had a couple college students that I was working closely with who were um, dealing with incredible trauma in their past and incredible despair in their present. And I remember the moment I realized that I desperately longed for judgment to fall. And it didn't particularly matter to me how much of myself was implicated in it. Because I thought this world is too broken and it must be done. This must be set right somehow. And if part of me is a casualty of that cost, then so be it. Come Lord Jesus. Judgment is a part of how God restores all things in the end. And it's not something to be afraid of. It is something to be aware of and even to rejoice in as the Psalms do. That God will set these things right. Judgment and healing healing. Revelation has a beautiful image of the river flowing through the city of God, lined with trees on either side, and the trees have leaves which are for the healing of the nations. 
The trees have leaves that are for the healing of the nations. I mean, just what a gorgeous image that is. Think of the setting of a broken bone, uh, the, the bringing back into the right way of things. Think of the word salvation we talked about earlier, soteria, this sense of the restored health to a broken body. This is what the life of Jesus provides for us as a foretaste. He says in Matthew, If by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is at hand, is amongst you. His healings, his miracles, are signs of what the kingdom of God will be like when God in the end heals all things, restores all. It's breaking in in the life of Jesus as a foretaste of what will be. What will consummation look like? It looks like the restoration of God's created purposes. The restoration of all things, of all of creation. So what implications would that have for us? How does that change the way that we view the world? Well, for starters, that means that what we do on this earth actually matters. Because this earth is the earth that God is redeeming. I think in a lot of Christendom in the West, there has been, particularly kind of in the growth of free market capitalism, there's been a vision of society in which every material thing exists for our productive capacity. Like how much can we make, how quickly to make how much money for ourselves? Crank it out. That's what it's for. That's what the earth is for. Well, no. And some Christians have actually been culpable in that and said, well, it's all going to burn anyway, so may as well keep going. Not quite. God will restore this earth, this creation. The flames that burn are flames that purify, not destroy everything. Otherwise, what would, what would Paul mean in Colossians by restoring all things to Christ? What would he mean in Romans when he said that creation will be restored to him? No, this world matters. And what we do with it matters. It's not simply going to be trashed. God still delights in it. We'll restore it to himself. So if that's true, how does that affect the way that we mine coal? You know, how does it affect the way that we treat our yard or our house? How does it shape the way that we make art or think about our cities? If the earth matters, if Florence matters, if this entire creation will be restored. We think about it differently, don't we? I know we've got a lot of Tolkien fans in the house because we're Anglicans, and Tolkien is just one of those people we look to. Uh, he has an incredible short story. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, heard of it called Leaf by Niggle. You guys heard of this story? So the story is Leaf by Niggle, and it's by J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's a story of a man who is an artist, and he's frustrated because his neighbor continually asks him for help, continually interrupts this painting, this great tapestry that he's, he's making. And he is uh, interrupted and interrupted and interrupted by all these needs, and in the end, uh, death comes to take him. And he finds, after many trials, on the other side that his this painting he's been working on, it's a tree, and he, he gets obsessed with one leaf after another. He never finishes it, but on the other side, he finds the tree, and it's alive, and it's growing, and it's just as he painted it, but right. And every place that he thought something was missing, it's there, and there's more to be done, and now he continues in that work. 
incredible story of God's conservation of his created purposes and even of our work in this life, in the next, in the consummation of God's plan. I invite you to read it. Um, you can find it free online. It's, it's worth the read. Leaf by Niggle. That's the first thing. What does this consummation look like? It looks like the restoration of all things, the restoration of everything, all of creation. And that leads us to the second question. How will this consummation come about? How will this happen? This restoration, this judgment, this healing, how will it come about? It comes about by the coming of the king again. By the coming of the king. Revelation 21. If you have your Bibles, we're going to spend a moment in there. It might be worth opening to it, but if not, it's written on your page to look at it later if you like. Revelation 21, and I'll read it for you. John, who's receiving this vision, sees and declares, Then I saw, Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, not ceased to exist, but had been the way of the old world had passed away. The sea was no more. Sea was an image of chaos in the ancient world, so the vision that, that John is getting is that chaos has been removed from creation. Right? It's, it's a metaphorical vision. I think the Lord likes the ocean. He made it in the first place. But this vision says there's no chaos here. There's no great presence of death and of destruction like the sea was on the horizon for Israel. And what does he see? John says, verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven is coming down to earth. In verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Heaven comes down and God declares that from now on I will be with my people. I will be in creation. How does consummation, the restoration of all things come about? It's by God coming here. It's not us escaping to heaven out of this earth. It is God coming to earth to dwell with us. N.T. Wright says that very often people have come to the New Testament with the presumption that going to heaven when you die is the implicit point of it all. I mean, how many times have we said that or thought it? Going to heaven as the implicit point of you all, of it all. And he right goes on. He says, they acquire that viewpoint from somewhere, but not from the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, we discover not that we escape this creation, but that God enters into it again as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis. God comes here to dwell. So where do we get that, that bad theology from, this vision of us escaping into heaven and creation left behind or destroyed altogether. Well, I think it's been so entrenched we even sing it to ourselves and I'm afraid I'm going to break your hearts this morning because it's in some favorite hymns. It sneaks in there. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. 
to a home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. Well, no, no. Now, these hymns could be read in terms of our own death and being brought into God's presence in that moment. And in that sense, they are true. But in the sense that they describe our final home being in heaven with God, they get it backwards. According to Revelation, God's final home is here with us. Try another one. The last verse of how great thou art. Ugh. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. Right? This is the second coming. This is the triumphant king. What happens when Christ shall come? He takes me home and joy shall fill my heart. Well, not quite. His home is here. Now, we're restored to him, and so you you can still sing it in good conscience. I mean, we're brought into right relationship with God. But if we take it literally, that hymn is not quite right. The home, in the end, is this earth. Is the king dwelling here with us? Is Jerusalem not ascending into the clouds, but descending onto this ground, this dirt? God will call it home. So let's try a, a better hymn. This is printed on your sheet. This is uh, Isaac Watts, Congregationalist minister from the 1600s, 1700s. It's another great one that you probably know. You might know if you've been around a while. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. It's here. His kingdom here. And the hymn goes on, and it's beautiful, and it's, it's, perhaps you could call it a little culturally insensitive, but not really. Uh, as it goes on, there's some people have been concerned about this hymn because it begins to list the islands with their kings, Europe bringing her best tribute, and then the next stanza, verse 3. Persia, glorious to behold, India shines with eastern gold, barbarous nations, barbarous nations at his word submit and bow and own their Lord. What's he saying? Is he saying that these different nations are separate and that Europe is higher than them? No, he's saying they're all coming to Christ. They're all coming to Jesus because the king has come here and reclaimed his creation. So every glory of every nation, as it goes on in the the, the second column, people in realm of every tongue, everything restored to him, all the world, And it ends with those last two stanzas that are just stunning to me. Where he displays his healing power, death and curse are known no more. In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. All the tribes of Adam, every human race, every community, find in Christ more than they lost in the fall. And so in the end, every creature rises and brings peculiar honors to our king. That's the end of the, of, the, of the psalm, which is actually his reinterpretation of Psalm 72. All of creation restored. The home in which, for which we wait, not somewhere else, but is here. The difference is that it is here with God, who restores all things. Think about the name Emmanuel. We tend to think of God with us as a description of the Christ child, the infant Jesus, who becomes present. But it's more than that. Emmanuel is the name of God because he will be with us. 
Even as he's with us now by his spirit, he will dwell with us forever. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the name of God, not just of baby Jesus. So what implications of this? Of how this happens, of the coming of the king? What implications would that have on our lives? Well, I think, again, it changes how we view the earth. If God is to come here, then there's a sense that we are preparing creation for him. Brokenly, failing forward. But that there's a reception that's happening, that's going to come as he arrives. And that that does change the way that I think about my house. (laughs) Uh, Not in that it needs to be spotless because he comes to Zacchaeus' house, as Luke so eloquently showed us this morning. He comes to the brokenness, but it it means that I want to honor him in these things. But I think, moreover, I think the bigger implication here is that the fact that the coming of God is how he, he restores the world, I think that changes how we talk about the goal of our faith. What's the goal? What are we after? What do we want? Is it escape from suffering? It's a good thing. Or is it union with God again? What's the goal? When we're telling our friends about Christianity, when we are evangelizing, having conversation, what's the goal? Is it get out of hell free? Is it know the Creator who loves you and wants to dwell with you? How do we talk about it? What's the pitch that we offer? The whole story is not about humanity just escaping from our suffering. It's about God restoring everything to himself in the end. The world set right and we set right in the world by the God who comes to dwell with us. That's the end of the story. And really it's just the beginning, right? Who knows what happens from there? A couple minutes left, <clears throat> and as we do, I just want to kind of address one objection I think comes up to this vision of the, the consummation of the end, of the restoration of all things. I think that the question that we feel when we talk about something so perfect um, is, is this real? It feels kind of trite and simple and pious and religious, but is it, does it actually have teeth? Does this actually have bearing on our lives? And is it true? I mean... I, there's a, a major movement in the last couple of hundred years, Nietzsche would kind of be center of it, to say that this kind of language about heaven and hell is just used to, to try to give hope to the poor. And in so doing, to, to keep them from actually rebelling. You know, it's a strategy of the leadership to try to keep people down, or it's a strategy of the bottom classes who, don't, uh, who can use it, talk about judgment to try to wheedle their way into power a little bit, try to get things their way by demanding justice. Nietzsche makes a big deal out of this. This is why he doesn't like Christianity or Judaism. And I think a lot of culture sees it that way. Animal farm, you've got the story of, uh, of the pigs taking the farm. There's a, there's a raven on the farm named Moses who sits on the fence and teaches about the existence of this mysterious country called Sugar Candy Mountain, to which all the animals go when they die. Sugar Candy Mountain, it's Sunday, seven days a week, clover in season all year round, lump sugar, linseed cakes growing on the hedges. This sense of heaven that's just happy and easy, and it's used to try to keep people down. Even the quote that began this lecture, the... the, um, the quote from 
the brothers Karamazov. I believe like a child that all the suffering will be healed and made up for. That's a quote from the mouth of an atheist. His brother's a priest, and the priest asks the atheist, can you believe in God? And the atheist says, I believe that everything will be set right. But then I look around me, he continues, and I didn't read that part. I look around me and I see all the suffering and I think there's just no way. There's just no way it could happen. That this could be made right. Nothing could make up for the suffering that I see. There's just no way. And so no, I can't believe any of it. I believe that this is what should be true and I don't believe that it is. I think sometimes when we look at something so beautiful as the consummation of all things, it's easy to dismiss it as pious doggerel or as just, as just nothing, nice, polite things to make us feel better. But I think as Christians, we have a reason to believe that this is actually true and that these things can happen, that the restoration of evil, that evil and brokenness can be restored to wholeness again. And the reason we cling to is the resurrection. It's what we've come to two weeks ago. We spent time on it in the morning. It's what we come to every Sunday. It's why we say, Alleluia. The resurrection is the moment in which the, the creator of all things dies for his people. The greatest, darkest day in all of, all of human history and history beyond besides. The greatest moment of loss and evil and suffering. And yet, Easter morning followed it. The resurrection means that no evil cannot be turned by God to good. That even the worst of things can be restored. And so as Christians, as we face criticism about the end, and could this possibly be true, there's not much we can say to convince those that disagree that it's possible to convince them that it is. I mean, this, isn't, this is an act of faith. And, but it's not without reason. We have reason. The reason is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is evidence that even the darkest days will be made bright again. As Martin Luther King Jr. would say, that Good Friday may occupy the, drone, the throne for a day, but ultimately it will give way to the triumphant beat of drums on Easter. It will be restored. Our confidence in it is not an evident triumph now, because very often we don't see it or feel it. Our confidence in the end is not in evident triumph now. It is in the resurrection. Because there we see that even the darkest of evil can be made right. That's what we hold to. That's why we hope. That's why we cling. That's why we trust that it will be made right. So our homework for this week, our last bit of homework in this six-week course. Can you guess what it is? Let's tell the story. Tell the story. And I would encourage you, the best way to tell the story of God is to first ask other people what they think the story is. What do you think Christianity believes? Christians believe. What do you think we think is actually happening here? Talk about it. See what they think. And then compare it with what you've talked about, what we've talked about these last six weeks. How is it different? And what do those differences change about how we live or how we think or how we, how we act as Christians? Tell the story. Okay, I think we're done. Let me pray for us and then uh, we'll be dismissed to get our kids. Lord Jesus, we praise you that this is all heading in a good direction. Even when we can't see how, even when we only see darkness and suffering around us, 
when we are afraid and concerned, Lord, that even then we can know that in the end, these things too will be made right. That your cross, your resurrection means that you have not abandoned this world, but have stepped into it, have taken the suffering and brokenness onto your own shoulders and have brought it through to new life on the other side. Lord, would you give us that hope? Would you give us faith to trust you in it? And wisdom to live in this story. We pray in your name. Amen. Dismissed to grab your kids.